0: You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, Episode Forty Seven. Today, our special guest is Dr. Arno Verslues, and we are discussing the Shanghan Lun. Hey, everybody! I'm Fiona Gitchum. and I'm Claire Pyers. And today, we're talking to Dr. Arno Verslues. Hi, Arno! Welcome to the Heavenly Chi Podcast.
1: Hi, and uh, thank you for your invitation to talk with you.
0: It's great to have you here with us. We're very excited to talk to you. Dr. Versluis is one of the very few Western scholars to have received his full medical training in China. He spent over 10 years at the Chinese medical universities of Wuhan, Beijing, and Chengdu, where he consecutively pursued his bachelor, master's, and doctor degrees in Chinese medicine and acupuncture. Dr. Versluis is a herbalist, acupuncturist and specialized in the classics of the oriental medicine doctrine while in clinic concentrates on internal medicine with an emphasis on autoimmune diseases and rheumatology. Dr. Veselous worked as an assistant professor and clinical supervisor at the Chinese medicine program at NCNM from 2003 to 2008. He is an internationally renowned lecturer often teaching in Europe, Canada and Australia. He has published many articles on acupuncture and botanical medicine and has completed a book on the science of herbal prescriptions. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com You can add Heavenly Chi podcast to your favourite RSS feed, iTunes or Stitcher and you can also follow us on Facebook All links are in the show notes, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. If you're really enjoying our show, please rate us on iTunes. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Heavenly Chi podcast. And hello, Anu. Welcome. Hey, guys. It's really great to have you here talking with us. I'm particularly really excited to be able to talk to you because I'm looking at doing some of your courses next year and I I would like to start by asking you if you can introduce the way that you work with Chinese medicine for our listeners and I know that in general you're focusing on the work with the shanghanlun um, but I would like to hear from you how that fits into your practice and how it came to be your focus
1: <laughs> That's a pretty big question actually. Um, my, the Shanlin does not fit into my practice in as much as it actually is my practice. Um, for about uh, 18 eighteen, 19 years now, I have practiced exclusively um, from the or with the methods of the Shanlin and the jingo Yalu. Um, when I was in China still uh, in the late 90s, I started uh, following this one very specific teacher, uh, Dr. Zeng Rongxiu. And um, he was a Shahanlan expert uh, trained outside the university system. And so all he did, all he knew was just Shahanlan and Jingguo Yalu. So he never used formulas that weren't part of that system. And so um, by studying with him, I also took on that same style of practice, which is just exclusively using kind of the, the methods that Zanzong Jing used to use back in the Eastern Han Dynasty. And so that's my practice. All I do is herbal medicine. I don't do acupuncture or toina. Uh, I only do herbal medicine. And then I only use herbal formulas and the herbs that are used in the Shan or the Jingwei uh, For the treatment of basically whatever comes my way. Now. Uh, When you just look at the text, there is, of course, a very strong emphasis on what we would generally call greater internal medicine. So it's the like, uh, you know, what we now call internal medicine. And then along with that also, gynecology, pediatrics, and so forth. Um, Not so much emphasis on external medicine or skin conditions per se, though um, if they arise from an internal uh, problem, often we still treat them uh, successfully. But the emphasis is on internal medicine for sure. And, and you mentioned that I kind of work on autoimmune diseases. This was not necessarily by choice. When I did my master's degree in China, uh, in Chengdu, um, I, I ended up working a lot in the, in the rheumatology department, working on rheumatoid arthritis and things like that. And because of that, you know, kind of developed a little bit more experience with that class of illnesses. Um, and so over time, patients with those conditions have kind of found their way to, to, to me. But but it is kind of my unofficial uh, specialty as I do treat anything that comes my way.
0: So working with at the Jingwei Yaluwei for herbal medicine, is this where you started with Chinese herbal medicine?
1: No, no. I was 18 years old and I moved to China. So I finished high school in Belgium. I'm originally from Belgium. Uh, moved to China, learned Chinese, and then enrolled in Hubei College of, of Traditional Chinese Medicine for my Bachelor in Medicine. And so I just did the regular, the regular program, you know, you'd have all your basic courses for the first few years, and then uh, once you get into your fourth year is when you start to study the classics, where you have your Jing uh, dian like your four great classics, uh, Neijing, uh, Shanghai Jingwei and the Wenbing School, which is arguably a bit younger than those other ones, but um, I really took a liking for the classics. I really fell in love with with the classical literature, the classical way of thinking, and I really felt that a lot of the answers that I wasn't finding satisfactory answers, a lot of the uh, answers that I couldn't find in the regular TCM, I was actually feeling like I could find them in the classical literature. And so it was my strong desire to specialize in the classics. That being said, that's not so easy per se because the people who still work on the classics tend to be more 75% academic versus only 25% um, clinical, Um, you know, pure, Classical clinic clinicians uh, have become a rare breed in China, and so it was quite difficult to really find my find find a find a teacher. And so I just started searching, and I that search led me to Beijing, and I, I interned for half a year in Beijing in the hope that I would find somebody there who practiced classically exclusively. But that actually didn't really happen. Very good experience nevertheless with my teacher there, but it wasn't exactly the same. And so ultimately. Um, through serendipity, actually ended up uh, leaving Hubei College of TCM and then after graduation and then enrolling in Chengdu University of TCM for my master's. And then via, uh, via, I ultimately ended up meeting my teacher who never trained in the academic world, who didn't, um, ha- he didn't hold a, a medical degree at all. He just trained in discipleship setting and therefore he was 100% clinician. <laughs> he couldn't. Uh, he couldn't really teach or explain to save his life. I mean, he could explain, but from a purely clinical perspective, coming from purely his clinical experience. And so, um, so it. I started with Shanghan exclusive Shanghan practice in about my fifth year once I got to China after be, after getting to China. In about my fifth year in China is when I started that journey of of committing exclusively to the classics. But my basic training before that was all TCM just like standard curriculum.
0: What kind of things did you notice in clinic during those first couple of years when you committed exclusively to the shanghan style of
1: practice? Um, What did I notice after I did only classical or before I started classical?
0: Yeah, so obviously, I'm I'm guessing that you were considering doing that because that's what your clinical results were guiding you towards?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. I'm a very pragmatic person, and so um, I always... I came to Chinese medicine, I think like many of us, or if not all of us, or at least I would hope all of us, believing truly in the power of of, of this medical system, and then time after time was disappointed in the inability of, of the majority of clinicians and professors out there in actually uh, producing the results that I believe the system capable of. And so I found that very frustrating. And so um, it was actually a disillusionment of, with the, the poor clinical results that TCM was producing that led me to look outside the university realm and led me to search for somebody who maybe still held the key to the clinical practice—not just you know nice lectures and beautiful talks, yeah—but if you can't, if you if you can only talk the talk but you can't walk the walk, then nobody's helped, you know. Then all it is is just a nice afternoon wasted. And so um, finding my teacher who couldn't really talk very well, like he wasn't a, an instructor, but his clinical results were above and beyond the results that all my university professors were producing. And so for me, that was very convincing. You know, it is a, it is not a medicine designed to talk about. It. it is a medicine to truly help people with. And so the results have to be there. And that was it. As soon as I saw that, I dropped everything else and I committed exclusively to that.
2: And I guess that's the thing that, you know, for most of us, we're not academics. We are in practice and we've got patients coming to see us and we want to get good results for them. And, you know, it can be really difficult to, um, I guess, to be learning new techniques and and learning theories from people who aren't necessarily applying it clinically or aren't getting results clinically. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we've got, um, you know, we've got practitioners who are actually 100% in clinical practice and they can say, hey, you know what, this is what works for me in my clinic with my patients, then, you know, that's such, such a valuable resource that you provide to other practitioners because there are, there are a lot of people who, you know, are teaching courses and, you know, teaching practitioners various, um, I guess, flavours of Chinese medicine. Um, mm-hmm. but not necessarily all of them are in full-time clinical practice and not necessarily all of them are getting great results with their patients.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very critical. I'm a very critical person, and I'm very critical of, of our field. And uh, 95% of the people who are teaching shouldn't be teaching, have no business teaching. And uh, maybe half of the people practicing have no business practicing. I don't think the, the training that people receive nowadays in the universities and in the colleges uh, worldwide, including in China, actually equip people to be good clinicians. I think you are almost set up for failure at the get-go. You are not being taught a waterproof, uh, uh, fail-safe system. You're being taught, you know, disparate kind of unconnected, little techniques here and there and then you kind of try to fit them in together and then maybe sometimes it works and sometimes you're lucky and you can replicate the results you had last week but then sometimes it looked like it was the same presentation but then it didn't, you weren't able to produce the results and you just kind of haven't been equipped with a, a really good clear system of thought that allows you to really know when something works, why it worked. and to know when something didn't work, why it didn't work. And so a lot of the stuff that's being taught is completely discombobulated. You know, We are not being taught a system anymore. And um, that's what's killing Chinese medicine. That's what's uh, decimating our efficacy. We are capable of producing a high level of efficacy, but we're not doing it right now. It's, we're just not, it somehow is outside of our our reach, and it shouldn't be, it really shouldn't be. But the more people, like you said, like you learn a little technique here, a little technique there. Um, as long as that all those techniques are not bound together by one very consistent system of thought, those techniques will only be just little pieces of techniques left and right. And, and, and so it, it, they might not actually ever recreate the big picture in your mind. I mean, we make do, obviously, Chinese medicine is a very forgiving science, and it is a very effective system, so considering how little all of us know, and I, I include myself, don't get me wrong, I'm, I am only critical of others because I am even more critical of myself. I always hold myself to an even higher standard than I will hold anybody else, and I work very hard to continuously elevate my own standard so that I may teach uh, my students better and may lift their standard. But um, Honestly, considering how little we know, we, we the, the beauty of Chinese medicine is that it is a very forgiving system, so we're not actually ever hurting people. And it's a very effective system, even though we might not be using it at its full potential. And already, we're really helping a lot of people, which is, which is really uh, amazing, actually. But it can be, it can be better. And, um, you know, I think we need to work, continuously strive to make it better. And the way it is developing now is not conducive of creating a, recreating the traditional classical system of practice. The way that Chinese medicine is developing now, it's becoming highly westernized, and it's becoming adulterated and polluted. And um, I don't believe that that will yield the results that we're all looking for. I don't think that's going to happen. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm very skeptical about the future of Chinese medicine at large.
0: I think it's interesting what you're saying, and I have been thinking about um, Claire and I've been discussing the idea of preparing a kind of a panel so that we can get a bunch of people in Chinese medicine to actually discuss the future of Chinese medicine and things that we can do. So this is, I think, an uh, an interesting part of it, and it for me it makes me think of how you know with kung fu and with Chinese medicine and things like these amazing systems and an amazing bodies of knowledge that have developed through the lineage as a platform for their development Um, that now that they're not being distributed through the lineage and we had this you know amalgamated system while you're describing the the classics and that you related to that style of thought um, because it was very clear I, I I thought, you know, yeah, it's true that it seems like when you're dealing with the classics or just a really discrete, complete system on its own, it feels very uncluttered and clear. And sometimes when we go through the learning of TCM, the modernised Mao TCM, that is really just the collection of all the bits and pieces that they liked. Um, there's yep. not really one discrete lineage system that's been held intact and it does seem a lot more cluttered as a system to figure out as a practitioner which bits you're going to use and work with and which bits work for you and which bits you get results from and which bits you don't. And there's, I think there's more of a, probably more of a, a variation in how that's going to work for each person. It's oh. uh, like you say, maybe there's more holes to fall through.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you just mentioned that they created a system with the bits that they liked. But actually, if only that were true, um, I think that the system was created. The system was mostly created, uh, like you said, the, you know, Maoist Chinese medicine was created to fill up fill a void in in their public health field. And so um, they needed to be able to produce, you know, fairly capable or at least workable level uh clinicians um, fairly fast in a in a large-scale production style setting you know one classroom 300 people 400 people um, and so then you know they, they couldn't make it too hard obviously so we couldn't go too deep so the curriculum had to be kind of simplified and then furthermore as they started kind of deciding what was going to go into the curriculum or not, you know, everything was decided in committee and notoriously so when things get decided in committee in China, people don't actually fight and put into the final document what they all believe was the most important piece of information or the most valuable piece of information. Ultimately, what makes it into the, the document is the thing that nobody actually was too offended by. So it's, it's they're coming at it from a political correctness point of view you know like if one person were to say let's say in committee i believe we have to put a heavy emphasis on Lun style thinking in our curriculum but another person who maybe came up through discipleship in a different discipline not in a Lun discipline would say well what gives you the right to say Lun is better i believe that my style is actually the style that should be more represented and so they kind of had to duke it out as we say in in, in america they kind of had to um, Clash a bit, and so ultimately, a lot of the things that might have been too contentious never made it into into the curriculum, into the textbooks. It's just the stuff that everybody kind of could settle on that not that that wasn't too abrasive to any uh, stakeholder of that process. That's the only the stuff that made it into the curriculum, and so a lot of things were left out. A lot of things were left out. So it wasn't necessarily oh let's oh let's put all the good stuff in. It's actually let's put the stuff in that everybody can agree on, rather than, yeah. than
0: just I was admittedly being just a little facetious when I they <laughs> just put in the stuff that they liked, because I also know that a whole lot of stuff that was expunged to do with the spiritual and the magical side of things, which is one of my favorite areas to work in, you know, that stuff missed out as well.
1: Yeah, especially the field of acupuncture suffered even more than the field of herbal medicine because uh, from the communist point of view, you know, coming from a purely materialistic worldview, because, of course, the idealistic worldview was not allowed at the time, so herbs are much easier to agree upon and are much more politically correct because they grow somewhere. You can touch them. You can taste them. You can put them under a microscope. You can actually even, um, you know, commercialize them. But acupuncture, and a lot of the, the talk in the acupuncture discourse is is highly spiritual and highly philosophical, and a lot of the, F, the how acupuncture works wasn't that clear cut or easy to understand and looked a little bit more mysterious and had much more ties with the belief system of the people, you know purely ideological things, like nothing to do with a material thing, and so that suffered much more. When the censorship happens, you know. So, so that's why I personally, that's why I feel like learning herbal medicine is much easier than learning acupuncture because a, there's a lot more old doctors um, who know herbs who are, you know, still alive as opposed to the ones who did acupuncture. There's a lot less old acupuncture masters alive compared to how many herbal masters there are alive, and there's a lot less books. Uh, On acupuncture that have survived compared to the number of books that have survived on herbal medicine. And that's why I personally feel herbal medicine is easier than than acupuncture. I find acupuncture very difficult uh, to understand its mechanism.
2: You know, I have to agree there. And I find that one of the most frustrating components of learning acupuncture and developing your expertise as an acupuncturist is, you know, when you try and go back and find that information, a lot of it is kind of, you know, locked up in those family secrets and, oh, it's a secret lineage or, you know, we can't reveal that information to you. And I think that's where, you know, like the TAN School of Acupuncture and people like Kiko Matsumoto who have kind of turned their approach into like a formulaic approach that they're teaching people, this is the framework that, that we use and, it's you know, it works for us. People just kind of really go for it because it's a full system You know, as you say, Mm -hmm. that idea of having a complete system that you use, um, you know, that's really effective, that, you know, in its entirety you don't kind of have to know anything else. And I think that, you know, it would be really great if there would be more classical, you know, we spoke with um, David White um, Mm -hmm. last year about, you know, he, he does Nanjing acupuncture. Nanjing Nanjing you?
1: Um, so, you might not like it if you say yeah, Nanjing no, I, I don't
2: want to call it the I don't want to call it the wrong thing I was thinking Nanjing and then said Nanjing but yeah you know and that's like that's just amazing to me because um you know there's very few places to be able to learn those classical you know those truly classical styles you know um, and I don't know much about Zhongjing, and that's I guess part of why we've got you on the show today but you know, right, if, right. if he were an acupuncturist today, what would he be doing? Or was he primarily right. a herbalist? He was an herbalist, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and is there a system that we can kind of look at for the acupuncture side of things?
1: Oh, I mean, Dun is probably the first um, Chinese medicine clinician to actually ever even mention the simultaneous or suggest the simultaneous use of herbs and needles. There is no other book uh, that you can actually read where the instruction is, well, you know, you can give these herbs and for the same condition you can needle this point and, you know, in the Han Dynasty is the only book and therefore that makes it also the earliest book that, that actually suggests an integrated approach, integrated being, um, integrating acupuncture within your herbal practice. And so uh, although I am not, an much, I mean, I obviously I, I know how to do acupuncture and I did acupuncture for a long time. Ultimately, I chose to, to quit my acupuncture practice and only focus on herbal medicine because I feel that's what I'm good at. And I feel that I cannot look myself in the mirror doing acupuncture on a patient knowing that the level of knowledge that I have about acupuncture uh, pales in comparison to the level of knowledge I have about herbs, and so I feel like if I'm going to practice acupuncture, I should have a, 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 I should be able to to practice it at the same high level as I can with my herbs. And so since I'm not capable of doing that, since I only have 24 hours a day, <laughs> um, I chose to just do one thing, and and that's fine, you know. But uh, yeah, there is th- in our training we do have a little bit of. Uh, uh, acupuncture training in the sense that we we want to bring to the attention of canonical herbalists that they should streamline their acupuncture treatments and somehow make them like tighten it up tight tighten everything up so you know tighten up the loose ends and and streamline it with the herbal medicine so if you're for example um, You're you're treating a young mean disease and you're using herbs that predominantly treat the young mean conformation then we try to caution people and give them some tools to realize like, wait a minute, don't go try and release the Taiyang exterior or don't go try and harmonize the Shaoyang exterior when all you're doing with your needles, when all you're doing with your herbs is, is treating Yang Ming. Focus heavily on, on the Yang Ming then, release Yang Ming. Don't go, don't go disperse the attention of the body's zheng qi. And so, you know, kind of just to tighten things up a bit, and, and allow people to integrate herbal practice with their acupuncture while they have not yet quit doing acupuncture.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have a question. Um, what's your favorite translation of the Jin Gui
1: uh, I mean, this is a difficult question for me because I I, I never read translations. So of co- I mean, oh, I, I went to school in yeah. China and I did my whole training in Chinese, and so. Chinese is like a second language to me, and 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 so but when my so my philosophy on translations is that in absence of you as a student possessing the ability to access the original text firsthand, then I think it's always good to have more than one translation, right? Mm -hmm. And so so because translation is a very organic process, and the the actual uh, translator will bring their own whole life story and understanding of Chinese medicine into the process of translation. And so one person might translate a sentence as meaning one thing, but another person coming from a different place, having a different educational clinical uh, life background might find something different or or see a different meaning in, a se- in the same sentence. And so I believe that it is good to, and while there is a common meaning, there there is quite a bit of detail that might Be different from one person to the next. And so I I always suggest like the one that Nigel Wiseman did with Sabine Wilms. I suggest people to get that one. I think that came out with Paradigm Press. And then there's one that came out by a Korean translator slash commentator, and I don't remember his name now, but it's an orange-covered Book also translation of the Jingwei, and so I think if you have those two, there's an old one that's out from maybe 30 years ago, 40 years ago, a small one with kind of strange terminology, like English terminology, like the choice of words is a bit, a bit um, doesn't flow very well. You know, so I don't necessarily recommend that that one. I think that was New World Press. I think that's like an older, older version. So, but I think if you have the wiseman Wilms one, and then you have the one done by the Korean author, and I can't think of his name right now. Um, but if you have those two, I think you have a, a nice, nuanced view of of the um, you know the core meaning of each sentence. Uh, that said, during my seminars, I also always give in handouts than kind of my own translation on whatever passage it is that we are discussing because I sometimes have my own take on things. That's it's really nice. Yeah, it's, sorry to interrupt. It's, it's nice to be able to access the, the text firsthand, right? But if really we have to answer the question, do you think that it is worth my effort studying Chinese language and will it improve my Chinese medicine? I always tell people, don't bother unless you really started early and you're going to throw yourself in teaching and academia and research. Then you have to. That's true. But unless that, if you're just if you just want to be a clinician, I think there are more and more translations coming out, and you just find a good teacher who can bring the text to life, and you will be fine. The time you will, the time you would have to spend on mastering the language to be able to ultimately. Um, independently read and understand and actually put to use the classical text that is going to take many many years and if you just spend those years studying with a good teacher who teaches you tells you how the clinic is done you will make much faster progress and you will have a much more direct result in your practice you know you, with your patients your income levels will will rise I and mean, then all that all that stuff is going to be very direct
0: Great. So when Claire asked you earlier if you've got a book coming out, perhaps one day you'll you'll translate this for us as well.
1: Yeah. Yes, that is indeed the plan. I mean, the books have been written in my mind. Now I have to find a way to get them on on paper. I mean, I I have an extremely busy schedule. I teach uh, an insane amount of seminars. I run two busy practices. finding time to kind of reduce my workload on 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 those fronts and then finding time to to write is is a slow process for me i have started writing but it is not something it won't be out anytime soon but i do plan to ultimately come out with the translations of the text to accompany my training i want to come out with a book on herbs and formulas uh and a book on on classical physiology you know there's a few book projects in the works but nothing Nothing mature enough yet. Plus I've always I've always lived by the code. I, I believe if you practice classically, you have to live by the classical code. It doesn't mean I have to wear ancient robes and live outside. but um, <laughs> what, what I do mean with that is that nobody it, in, the, in, Han, in the Han Dynasty, you had to be forty years old or older to become a scholar. right? So first of all, clinicians don't publish books, only scholars publish books in the old days, and so you had to be 40 years or older before you were eligible to take the formally sanctioned government exam to rise to the ranks of a scholar. And so I I refused to publish anything before the age of 40 because um, I think intellectually you are a baby under the age of 40, uh, especially when it comes to Chinese medicine. It is so deep, you haven't had enough years in practice you know, and so I always refuse to publish anything before the age of 40. In the meantime, the age of 40 has come and gone. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel the pressure to start publishing. <laughs> no so I, did, I have started working on it, but uh, <laughs> it might take a few more years before the first book comes out. <laughs>
2: well, you know, you're such, a, you're, you're such a great speaker. Perhaps you could just um, have someone record your classes that you teach and just have, you know, open up. A, a, yeah, a copy of the I, Shang Han Lun and just teach it and, you know, have it transcribed and that can be your first draft of your book.
1: I, I am very well aware of that and um, and many, many people have suggested that to me and um, I am too much of a, of a perfectionist to allow myself to do that. That's, that's my problem. Um, for example, one of my uh, acquaintances in China, uh, Liu Li Hong. He's a professor from Guangxi University. He wrote that book contemplating Chinese medicine, Si Kao Zhongyi, and um, you know was a bestseller for many many years in China. Even for non-Chinese medicine people, it was it was really a, a, an enormously popular book, very accessible to everybody. Also for people who are in China and actually were able to get some profound things out of it. Um, that book is a basically a transcription of seminars of, of him, of lectures that he would give at the university. And while the content of that book is is very spellbinding, I find the writing style absolutely uh, horrific. <laughs> and so I, can, I just cannot read something that is just a, a written down record of an, of something that was narrated. I, I just couldn't, I cannot stand that. So I'm unable to produce a book like that.
2: <laughs> uh, perfection paralysis is, uh, is quite an affliction. Yeah.
1: You know, which is a very, a very dangerous thing. Absolutely. I'm very well aware of that. I know that there comes a point if I, I, I also, I'm aware that I cannot drag this out, this process of, you know, perfecting the research, perfecting the research, and then before you publish something. You know, I have to oh. accept that there is such a thing as, you know, you do a first edition and then 10 years later you do a second edition, yeah, and totally, that's fine too. Totally. So well,
0: the pressure's on. We're waiting for your book.
1: There <laughs> yes,
2: are many okay. guys... <laughs> yes, <our laughs> practitioners around the world are also waiting. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm actually dep- I I actually don't even need external pressure. I, I'm I'm a very good
2: at, uh, very
1: good at giving myself pressure.
0: <laughs> I think I think we picked up that and that. I'm yeah. wondering if we can talk about the Shanghan Lun and perhaps yeah. some things about the Shanghan Lun and what you would like to share with people, what you would like our listeners to know, those that haven't studied it. Um, in the degree that I did, I got lucky and I got a whole subject On it um, in the degree, it was a fairly good focus. It wasn't major, but it was pretty good. Um, And I've noticed other people haven't had that in their course. So um, I'm thinking of a couple of things to do with the six confirmations. Perhaps we can talk about those a little. And even just to clarify or go into why you call them confirmations and why that's a more accurate term than the six phases, which I think most students of TCM are actually more familiar with.
1: Well, I mean...
0: Or the six stages,
1: which... uh, yeah, yeah. What's in a word, ultimately, right? I mean... um, I, you know, I, let me preface it by saying that, you know, I know a number of languages. I'm from Belgium, and we grow up learning a lot of languages, and languages, the study of language has always come easy to me. Um, I'm not saying Chinese is easier, but, but you know, it, I, I enjoyed learning it, and I was able to learn it, and, and so forth. Um, I don't enjoy learning language for the sake of just mastering that language. As such, I am definitely not a perfectionist when it comes to the, the perfect word choice. I am not a sinologist. I am not a linguist. I'm a clinician, and the language is my my interface through which I can communicate with this you know ethnic medical system that we call Chinese medicine. And so um, when I you know, came to Portland to teach here and my colleague Heiner Fruhoff and he was using the word confirmation and he is indeed a sinologist and I, I, I actually you know, never really gave it any second thought that it fit for me that, that, that word fit and so I didn't feel like I needed to look any further to find uh, a different word for that. Now the reason why it fit is because and this is now the next thing I'm about to say is part of a century-long debate. So, Shanghan Lun commentators and scholars have argued and are still arguing as to whether the Shanghan Lun is it truly a channel differentiation system or is it something else? Right? Is it so? Basically, is it really like a j- Jingmai Bianzheng? Is it like a channel differentiation, channel and vessel differentiation? Or is it something else? And so I would think that, and some people are very strict with that. They say, no, it is purely a channel-based method of differentiating. And I don't subscribe to that theory. I subscribe more to the theory, which they kind of consider it to be, the Jing um, encompasses something much larger, right? And so, um, you know, the word Jing is basically a, a vertical connection between heaven and, and earth and man. When you look at, for example, the meridians on our planet, they all go from pole to pole. They don't go sideways, right? And so it's from top to bottom. And so um, kind of embodying the principle of as above, so below. So when we talk about a conformation, for example, the Taiyang conformation, we're not just talking about the bladder channel and the small intestine channel. We are actually talking about uh, the the, the Qi that goes with Taiyang, which is the cold Qi. We are talking about the direction that goes with Taiyang, which is the direction of the north. We are talking about the element or the phase that is linked with Taiyang, which is the water phase. We are then, you know, we are talking about the color black. We are talking, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's such a large. For example, the 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 black turtle um, constellation in the, in the in the in the star signs. Uh, in the star constellations, And so we're talking about a lot more than just the bladder channel and the small intestine channel. So in a way, these meridians are kind of like an interface. They're kind of like how all these external um, influences and external entities that uh, are part of nature, how they communicate with the part in your body that we will call Taiyang. And so uh, if it's really cold outside, your body feels that cold, and you know you're more more likely to have a slightly more contracted bladder, and therefore a uh, more frequent urination, and therefore that urine is going to be more clear and less concentrated since it didn't spend as much time inside your warm body, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you can, but the interface, how the external world communicates with your internal world, right? How the external aspects of taiyang communicate with your internal aspects of taiyang, that bridge between them, that is indeed the jing, that is indeed the, you could say, the channel. So, But when we're talking about a a, a liu jing uh, bing, for example, taiyang bing, taiyang disease, we're not only going to talk about disease of your bladder. We're going to talk about disease of the bladder, disease of how the cold of the bladder is because the warmth of the small intestine, which is normally in charge of warming it, wasn't uh, you know was disabled through an external uh, pathogenic influence of cold, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, with symptoms of frequent urination, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we're talking about such a large grouping of things that actually, it's, it's that's why we're kind of the where the word comes from. We call it a confirmation because it, it's a, a group of things that all are linked with taiyang. So it's all these things conform with the essence, the core idea of what Taiyang represents. And that's kind of where that word comes from. In German, like I teach a lot in, in, in German-speaking regions, they don't have a word conformation. And so they actually use the word constellation, which in English gives us a bit of, a, almost like an astronomy feel, which is not necessarily what ideal. But uh, in, in German, that's kind of the, the, the word that they seem to consider that approximates it the best, which, you know, which is exactly that. Like when a, a lay person who doesn't know anything about stars looks at the night sky, you just see thousands of dots, thousands of bright little dots, but you don't see the lines that connect the dots. Right? So once you are trained to really know what you're looking at, then for example, you can say, oh, these seven here Okay, that now that's now that's the big difference. Now I understand, or or this and that constellation. So to the trained eye, things are linked. To the untrained eye, things look completely uh, unattached and completely uh, separate from each other. And so that's kind of the idea behind the word confirmation: is that it's a it's a big grouping of things. And so um, other translations that have been used by other commentators, for example, was Jing Ji, which is also used in the in the um, uh, in the Neijing, which is kind of like um, there's a time component to the word Jingji. It's you know it sometimes it's phase or epoch or or so forth. You know periods can be used as, as such. Uh, another way is uh, another word that was used is Jingjie. Jie being like a realm or a world. So then. Uh, clearly, kind of showing like, well, there's lots of topographical areas on the body that belong to taiyang, not just the bladder alone. And so, ultimately, I think confirmation is a nice word to kind of uh, represent all of these different meanings. But it is definitely not only um, the channel. You know, if you want to do channel differentiation, you know, you mentioned that you've talked to uh, my good friend uh, David White. Uh, Channel differentiation, you know, you can find that in the Neijing, right? There's two types of diseases of the channel. One is called shudong, right, when the channel is stirred by something, uh, and one is sheng, which, you know, when the disease is engendered it, from the channel itself, right? in the, from, from the inside out. And so two types of pathologies. And the Neijing describes very clearly, for example, when the small intestine channel is stirred, then the symptoms are XYZ. Versus when the small intestine channel physiology uh, is disturbed by its like is is, is uh, when the small intestine channel is sick because of its own dysregulation from the inside out, it has a, another grouping of symptoms, right? That is pure channel differentiation. And when you compare the channel differentiation of the Jingmai Pian, of the Nijing, with the symptoms of uh, six conformation differentiation. There, of course, is well a little bit of overlap, but actually they're, they're quite different. I'm gonna say if they have 10, 15% overlap, some channels more, some channels less, uh, it'll be a lot. Mostly they're quite different still. So so ultimately, in conclusion, I would say it is not exclusively a channel differentiation system. It's a lot bigger than that.
2: So that's a, that's a really interesting point if we've got you know, a discussion in the Neijing of here's the signs and symptoms of, you know, let's stick with a small intestine channel. You know, when the small intestine channel is affected by some sort of disharmony, here is the signs and symptoms. How how then would you, um, I guess, would you apply your knowledge as a clinician to say, okay, well, this person is going to do better with acupuncture because they kind of fit this system better or, you know, like does it then make the herbal, like the application of herbal medicine more complicated for that type of, or is that more of a theoretical argument?
1: The classics state, so the Neijing itself states that, um, well, there's a few different passages that are relevant to your question, but I think the one that I personally find the most relevant is where the Neijing Uh, says, well, in the ancient days, in ancient, in upper antiquity or ancient antiquity, the minds of people were very pure and people lived in balance with nature. And so when they would get sick, the diseases could not penetrate deeply. So they could actually still cure themselves or heal their own illnesses using uh, guided movement and breathing exercises. In middle antiquity, you know, a little bit maybe, let's, if we have to put a number on it, Upper antiquity, to me, means that, you know, people living as cavemen. Yes, indeed, a caveman or woman lives in balance with nature because they live a life just like an animal would live, a life, live their life, you know, perfectly in balance with nature. Uh, and they don't have these, all these complex emotions that humans have. And so, indeed, the diseases couldn't penetrate deeply. Their zhenqi was stronger. You don't see animals get sick at the drop of a hat like humans do. Um, In Middle Antiquity, uh, Chibo says that, you know, people's minds started to suffer more pollution, lifestyles started to get more sedentary and farther removed from the normal balance of nature, and the diseases could start to penetrate already a little bit more deeply. And then he says, well, then it was good for people to heal their illnesses using acupuncture and using the rubbing of animal fats, which basically means massage and body work, um, you know, now we have nice smelling, <laughs> fragrant massage oils, but back in the day we had to use butter or something like that. Yeah. And then he says, nowadays, and of course when Chibo talks about nowadays, you know, we are talking about 2,500 years ago. He says that the minds of people are impure. People are suffering uh, tremendously, you know, lots of mental turmoil, emotional turmoil. Their lives are completely unnatural. They are completely off balance with the laws of nature and their d- diseases have become so toxic and are so deep in the body that only herbs can cure. And so if that is a statement made by Chibo 2,500 years ago, then I can only think that it hasn't gotten better since then, that people are even farther removed from nature, that people <laughs> are more unnatural lives. And truly, I mean, of course, I'm an herbalist, right? So. This is a very important passage that I live by, which is that people come to me with such deeply rooted physiological imbalances that you need a chemical solution for a lot of these problems. Mm. The strength of acupuncture, the strength of breathing exercises and qigong, while all helpful and, and very helpful even and very good, but a lot of illnesses, especially when we're talking about illnesses that, have um, very clear tissue changes, chemical changes and tissue changes in the body, like uh, you know, tissue deterioration or tissue growth or whatever, it is very difficult to address them with the methods that classically, according to Chibo, were more for when the diseases were less deep, a little more shallow, a little bit more in the extremities, in the channels, in the skin, in the muscles, and not so deep in the organs, right? And so, from that perspective, herbs are, are very important. Zhang Jing himself, there's a, a third version of the Lun called the Jingwei Yu Jing. It's the, the jade envelope inside the Golden Cabinet classic. And it's also compiled by Wang Shu in the in the Jin dynasty. So he compiled Lun, he compiled the Jingue Fang Fanglun, and then um, he compiled this kind of third book with some of the stuff that he got his hands on, some of the scrolls he was able to to get his hands on. And in that, in the preface to that work, although it's hard to say, it's hard to attribute the preface to, what, to Wang suhu or, or whether it was written by somebody else during the Tang Dynasty, but that aside, um, he does, Zhang Zongjing, it is kind of, in the text it says it's Zhang Zongjing talking, right? Um, you know, talks a, a lot about, he says, well, when when the illnesses are in the extremities and in the channels, uh, and there's congestion in the circula- in the circulation through those channels, use needles, use massage, the rubbing of animal fat, use movement, use breathing, all that stuff. Uh, but then he does say, you know, but then ultimately when the disease is on the interior, you have to use decoctions to wash the organs clean. He says the power of the liquid, the power of water with which you make uh, the decoction, he says it's very powerful because water can float a ship, but it can also overturn it. And so those two passages I think are kind of telling because they're both Han Dynasty passages or give or take a hundred years Han Dynasty passages that give us kind of an idea of how back then a certain group of people, of course, more people who are herbally inclined, thought about the value of herbal medicine and when it was more applicable. Um, And if I may add another aspect to the answer, which is that I don't believe that Chinese medicine, that the whole of Chinese medicine, Tui uh, Na, dietetics, um, you know, Dao Yin, like you know, Qigong energy movement, um, acupuncture, herbs, etc. I don't believe that it was ever intended to be practiced by one person, and I think that's one of the big traps that we have been misled by TCM to think that we're supposed to somehow practice it all, do it all, know it all. Actually Zhang Jing, uh, not Zhang Dongjing, excuse me, Chibo says it in the Neijing. he says it very clearly. He says, um, there are so many different methods because there's so many different people, but nobody should try to master them all. You should just choose one and stick with it, right? And thus, coming back to your question, when a person comes to your practice, um, the question as to whether you should treat them with herbs or whether you should treat them in acupuncture actually then is no longer uh, uh, necessary because if you are an herbalist who exclusively specializes in treating everything with herbs, then whatever comes your way, you treat it with herbs because that's what you do. And if you are an acupuncturist who is exclusively specialized in acupuncture, and you know, because it is such a difficult field, Um, I feel that I do not have enough, I personally feel I do not have enough hours in a day to even properly study and develop my herbal knowledge, let alone trying to tag on uh, learning acupuncture on top of that. I don't think, I am personally not humanly capable of that. And so I can't but, but simplify my life and but focus on one thing. And not just all of herbal medicine. I do not have the mental capacity to focus on every style of herbal medicine. I can but focus on one style of herbal medicine. And I actually believe that the eclectic nature of Chinese medicine as a field, it was never intended to be embodied by every single practitioner within themselves. I don't think the eclectic nature of of our field was supposed to be something that we we were all eclectic practitioners. No, The, the field is eclectic, because the field is a grouping of you know countless individuals who each are experts in one thing one style you know one herbal style or one acupuncture style or you know and and actually a lot of problems disappear when you approach it that way and it's a very professional way of having a field such as for example chinese medicine could potentially be because you know if somebody is let's say specialized in Acupuncture only, and they encounter a case that is so uh, toxic, as Chibo would describe, that herbs are needed. Then you know you just refer them to somebody who only does herbs. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a very professional thing to do. And if somebody who's an herbalist encounters somebody who comes in with, you know, a pulled muscle, or I mean, I'm not trying to belittle or, or acupuncture as if it can only treat that, but I'm just saying. Something very black and white, something comes in and says, oh, I lifted a box yesterday and I threw my back out and I need some acupuncture. Well, then obviously I'm not going to bother giving you herbs. I'm just going to say, why don't you just go get uh, some acupuncture and maybe some Twainna or something like that. And I think that's a very professional way of, of functioning as a field. But I think we've been misled to think that we've got to do it all ourselves. And it's just not possible to be as good as we should be if we try to do it all ourselves. It's just not possible.
2: You know, I really like the comment that you made about, um, you know, that you feel like you've, you know, you're dedicating so much of your brain space when you're not, you know, in with patients. And I guess even when you are in with patients, but to, you know, consistently learning and, you know, looking for new knowledge and new ways of applying the information you already have. Can you give us an example of something new that's come to your mind or to the way that you've in the last year or two that's really made a big impact?
1: New? I mean, of, there's just something that has all of a sudden opened itself up to me. Yeah. I can put it that way. Because of course, I will have certain problems that I will ponder. And um, the the easy problems, of course, they will reveal themselves easily and fast and then some things just truly take a long time before before ultimately the answer um, appears in your mind. Um, nothing recent. I mean, the problem is that the more you do this stuff, the better you get, if I may use that term, you know, not to boast or anything. but the longer the periods between little epiphany moments. <laughs> you know, I really cherish and, 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 and feel nostalgic about the times when the, the epiphanies would come on a daily basis. Yeah. Now I sometimes have to wait for a couple years before something opens it up, something opens itself up. Because some of the issues that I might be pondering might be so complex that it's impossible that it's going to open itself up fast. It just requires a lot of lot of clinical work and it just requires a lot of hours spent thinking about it and a lot of nice nights slept uh, sleeping on it you know and so these things just you know don't come easily but uh, one of the big research projects that I was uh, working on and that I feel that I've been able to bring to more of a conclusion in the last few years to more of a satisfactory conclusion at least has been uh, the importance of the small intestine as an organ um, because it's such an important organ, um, just even just from a Western medicine perspective. Also, from a Chinese medicine perspective, for crying out loud, it's, 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 it's a partner organ to the heart. It doesn't get much more important than that. And since you can't treat the heart, then uh, the small intestine all of a sudden becomes the, the most important organ in your body. And so, um, that was always a, a mystery to me as to why it was so, ignored in Chinese medicine and so I've, I spent many years working on that and my students know that because a lot of my long-term students have, at least have witnessed the process of me struggling with that and I feel like ultimately uh, it's it kind of um, two years ago I think I was finally I felt that I got a good enough handle on it that I was able to actually dedicate a, a two-day seminar on the subject matter and just only about small intestine and, 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 and the ins and outs and the herbs that work on it and, and why it is so important and, and all that jazz. And so, yeah, so that's an example. But, but that stuff just takes so much time to, to develop. And that's why it needs more than one lifetime to be able to figure it all out. You know, It's hard to do it all in one lifetime.
2: You know, it's such a common thing, though. You know, the, the foo organs, I guess, you know, the young, um, the young organs, they get overlooked a lot, you know. We think, you know, we talk. Mm-hmm. We spend a lot of time talking about liver and spleen and heart and kidneys, um, and I guess that's one thing that does come when you're when you're coming from a Shanghan Lun approach is that, you, you know by by default you've got three of the six confirmations are comprised, you know, like you've got small intestine and bladder, you've got. Um, you know, small, uh, large intestine and stomach, you know, like they're paired Mm -hmm. either in yang or yin. And so I guess by default, you're probably already thinking more than someone who doesn't use a shanghanlon approach about, you know, how do I take into account the the function of the yang organs?
1: Ask yourself this question. How many in a 24-hour cycle, like in a full day, how many hours are you awake and how many hours do you sleep? (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, it, it's always a question of how many hours should I be asleep for? But, yeah. <laughs>
1: but what would be like a, a nice black and white perfect world <laughs> example? On time. Yeah,
2: well, you know, the, the, uh, the I guess the gold standard is eight hours of sleep, eight. eight eight of rest, yeah. eight of work, eight of play, yeah.
1: So two-thirds of, of the world is dedicated to young and only one-third is dedicated to young. Young is a far more important principle in, in our world, we are the product of a sun worshiping culture. We are mammals. We struggle to keep our body temperature up. And yeah. so, young is extremely important. And so, the hollow organs uh, being more important are just uh, characteristic for a medical system that focuses heavily on function. And our modern way of approaching TCM and valuing the solid organs so much is just a sign that we are very materialistic beings nowadays. Mm. Not on movement and not on function.
2: Yeah, you know that's something I really, um, you know, I agree with as well. I've had far more success in, you know, supporting people who've got problems with their liver by looking at how do I, you know, help the gallbladder, you know, that that kind mm-hmm. of yin yang partner and and using that as a better, you know, far better approach. And that's just, you know, that's just from a standard. You know, yin yang partner mm-hmm. approach, not kind of necessarily having anything. Well, then mm-hmm. you have to then go and develop your treatment protocol around what you're actually going to do about it. But um, yeah, I I definitely have spent the last few years looking more at the yang organs. So yeah, I'll. um It's a good reminder about the small intestine because it does get overlooked. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a uh, it's it's a very lonely organ. <laughs> it gets no love.
0: <laughs> uh, it's getting a lot more love, I think, from the perspective of people looking at the gut bacteria. Although, it's not really meant to be happening in the small intestine. I think that the expanded function of the small intestine organ that we perceive in Chinese medicine is is the equivalent that's getting all of that attention on the gut biome at this time. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yeah,
1: absolutely. You know, I mean, like, small intestine bacterial overgrowth is such a hot topic now, and and I gotta say, <laughs> From a classical perspective, I don't know what the, I kind of don't know what the fuss is about. It's really not that hard to treat. I'm sorry, maybe I haven't, uh, maybe I'm overlooking something. But once you understand the physiology of the small intestine, and it, that once you understand how crucial and uh, small intestine physiology is in that, and what you need to do onto the body to restore proper small intestine physiology, once you understand that, it really isn't that hard you know, but it's just not something that it, that we're being equipped with in standard TCM training. Mm. What are some
0: of the, oh, maybe <laughs> I think Claire and I have the same question. What are some of the main things about the small intestine that you feel a lot of the TCM practitioners these days aren't really getting in their training or? I,
1: well, know, so- I mean, it's, it's not even just TCM. So in the Han Dynasty, something very important happened, which is that uh, Bian Que introduced Mingmen theory into the medical field, and Mingmen theory is not inherently a medical doctrine. You know, it comes more from the cultivational field, and so the Mingmen theory, being kind of that fire uh, that lives in the lower abdomen between the kidneys, etc. A lot of the things that, that, that we talk about when we talk about the Mingmen are actually functions of the small intestine. And so, a lot of the herbs that we later said, oh, this strengthens Mingmen fire, actually, all it does is it warms your small intestine. You know, it is, the small intestine is indeed the fire inside the water because, like as I said earlier, Taiyang is the cold water of the north, but the small intestine from a phase perspective is imperial fire. So the small intestine is indeed imperial fire Inside the cold water of the north, right? And so the Mingmen theory has just created a ton of confusion, and it has actually suspended the need to talk any further about the small intestine. And ultimately, all we ended up with small intestine Qi stagnation and, and hard fire relocating to the small intestine, and that's all we get in TCM. But it doesn't cut it, you know. We kind of just so uh, like Jing does not use Mingmen theory. The whole Meijing does not have the concept of a Mingmen. The concept of a Mingmen is much more part, much more uh, spelled out in the Nanjing and is not inherently a medical piece of theory, right? There's nothing wrong with it except for the fact that because we've been working so much and using so much the concept of Mingmen is that we've been overlooking the small intestine. And once you realize that actually a lot of the functions of the Mingmen are small intestine functions, the, the actual organ, which is palpable and you can feel it and it's right there you know much easier to relate to and you can link it now with confirmations and all that um it opens up a world of of treatment possibilities that that otherwise might have been neglected
2: this will will be will be asking because Arno is saying wow you know um, you know small intestine bacterial overgrowth so easy to treat Talit, can you share some examples of um, the type of formulas that you'd be using with patients who have SIBO?
1: Well, out of risk of maybe, well, first of all, if you want to treat the small intestine, most often you'll be using Aconite formulas. And so I'm a little reluctant maybe to just um, uh, tell everybody in your audience now to go out and, and, and start using Aconite prescriptions because that is indeed still a group of a family of prescriptions that does require a little bit of training to be able to use effectively and safely. Um, so So on that level, it'd be a bit hard to take it out of context and just say, "Well, this formula is really great, And that formula is really good too, because if a person doesn't have the pulse indication for a certain formula, then that formula could be very, very bad for them. So from mm-hmm. that perspective, I would say, um, maybe that's not the wisest way to to address this in the limited amount of time that we have here. Um, but often, when you see, you know, it, it, when the small intestine cools off, you see a lot of symptoms of, of um, you know, either the loose stool or so forth that can happen because the fire is too weak to metabolize and and kind of steam up and dry out the fluids that have to transit through the small intestine. It also then leads to um, obviously malabsorption, like a Shao yin type of diarrhea with undigested food. The other is also possible is like when the small intestine is too cold is that under the influence of cold, uh, physical matter contracts. And then the small intestine actually goes into a cold spasm or a cold contraction. And then you can actually have an accumulation of things in the abdomen, things not passing, you know, like the methane type where people have like a, a distention and bloating and fullness and, 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 and um, not too much elimination, but uh, too little or, or very sluggish or very unsatisfactory. And then, you know, especially, you know, the ileocecal valve is, is very prone to that kind of spasming. And also there you'll need to use warming herbs too. Only using Qi moving herbs is not going to help if the cause of the stagnation of Qi is due to a cold, is due to a lack of fire in that organ, and so you have to use warming herbs in that context as well. So um, restoring the physiology of the small intestine, an important aspect will be to bring the temperature of the small intestine back to its normal physiological temperature. Right? And then there's other aspects as well. I mean, it could also just be, because of course every organ has three layers, right? It has a chi layer, a water layer, and a blood layer, and so when I'm talking about warming the small intestine, you could warm the blood layer of the small intestine as well. and then. You're using more the cinnamon type of prescriptions. And so, um, yeah, I mean, this is just in a nutshell, of course. But but it's, a, it's not just that, oh, yeah, one formula always works. I mean, you still have to differentiate, and it still has to fit with the pulse and everything. But there is a very large uh, selection of formulas that could all be applicable in these situations.
2: I think that... Um... What our listeners will definitely get out of this episode is that uh, if they do want to learn more about this, that of course you do run courses regularly and there's a lot to learn. All of the intricacies around um, the Shang Lun and the Jingwei where approaches to herbal medicine is, um, you know, it's a whole. Yeah, I mean, you, know, you could go all the way down the rabbit hole to Wonderland, you know, yeah. in terms of learning.
1: Koyun Bai said it's. Quite aptly, he's a you know uh, uh, commentator, quite famous. Um, he he once said that you know the the, the it's not an easy path. Like get, you know getting your foot in the door and, and walking this path, learning shahanan, and basically it means that learning a Han Dynasty style of practice um, is hard at first. It does take quite a bit of an overhaul of how you do things and a, a, a kind of a revisiting everything you think you know and kind of recalibrating everything you do. And, but once you've done that and gone through that process, um, you will see, you will notice that you are able to deal with a much wider range of, of conditions and also uh, conditions of a much greater uh, difficulty. Uh, you'll 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 find yourself tackling things that maybe a couple of years ago you might not have been able to tackle. But it just it it does take a bit of work, and that's why we definitely don't treat this stuff lightly. Where I'm just gonna throw a few formulas out there. You know, it's it's we offer a training system that allows people to kind of really redesign how they work with herbs and redesign their herbal practice. It's not just one or two seminars and you come learn a few techniques and you 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 go away. As a matter of fact, doing that creates a lot of confusion and and can be uh, quite bad for your clinical confidence because you kind of get things a bit sh- shaken up but not enough to settle settle it all and put it all back together and so yeah our training does take a, a couple years kind of just doing part-time seminars on weekends um, but you know we've trained many people now you know we have, graduated close to 300 people for our training system. And the the fastest way of doing it, like we do it in the U.S., is at least two years of work. And then we've got another couple hundred people in the pipeline who are actively taking this training right now. And the the feedback that we always get is that people are really just, are able to have much more confidence in clinic, and they just are able to have better results with a much more heavy duty, selection of conditions you know so that just is testament to to that they've gotten better that their ability to understand things has has grown has matured yeah, yeah. but it is it is not just <laughs> a little seminar it does it is there's quite a fair bit of study to be done but once once you've you're in the system and once you're really comfortable using it um yeah the 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 amount of of confidence and certainty you have in your diagnosis and your prescriptions and also therefore how it eliminates your anxiety in clinic because we all have a bit of anxiety in clinic because we're trying to really deliver results to our patients. They are suffering, we are in this field because we really want to help people and so it's really, um, it kind of takes a lot of that anxiety out out of the picture and so you're a much more settled, confident, happy practitioner. And not, you're not doing things because you really are just to produce results. Like you very clearly know what to do now, what to do next, where are things going Going to be in a couple of days? Where are they going to be in a couple of weeks? You have, you know, your, your game plan is always very clear. And that's important. That's something that I personally felt TCM was not giving me.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's definitely something that's um, lacking in, um, in the mainstream education and um, I know quite a few people who've done your um, who are learning with you and um, they all speak very highly of um, of the approach that you teach so um,
1: thank you thank you I appreciate that
2: Mm.
0: I think also being able to communicate with that kind of clarity about what you expect to happen next and where you're going to go next is something that patients really value and they're always asking for So if you're the kind of practitioner where the plan that you lay out for them as being the most likely journey um, is accurate, you know, then that definitely is, is really important in patient retention and trust in that relationship.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You are the captain of the ship and they come to you for guidance. And uh, I think it's extremely important. And if you're not confident, even though you might try to fake it or might put on an air of confidence, the patient knows. They always know. They feel it, you know, just like an animal feels when you're afraid of it, you know, and it's the same way. There's a lot more information that, that is passed, you know, beyond what is being said. And so it is extremely important as a practitioner to, to find that confidence, to really find that, um, that certainty. And even certainty, knowing that when something didn't work, you know for sure that there is nothing else you can do that is going to make it work. So you know for sure that this needs to be referred out. It is not going to be you who is going to fix this. This is, it is, you know, I always say to my students, it is more important to know what you cannot do than knowing what you can do, right? Because if you don't know what you cannot do, then you're just stringing people along half Mm -hmm. of the time, and that's not good because you're wasting valuable time and resources of your patients.
0: Mm, definitely.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, well, I think we need to wrap it up because we've run out of time. But uh, cool. thank you so much for, um, for coming on the show today and for um, sharing all of your insights and your knowledge. It's been so great to, uh, to finally meet you after hearing so much about you for so long.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. It's always uh, always nice to be able to connect with uh, with new people, new audiences, and I hope everybody enjoyed it.
0: I enjoyed it. It was great talking to you, and thanks for talking with everyone and sharing some of your information. And for any of our listeners, if you have any comments or anything to add, you can make those on their Facebook page for Heavenly Chi.
2: You know, if you're interested in doing some further study with Arno, then we'll link that up in the show notes as well, where you can find more information about doing training with Arno.
0: Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye for now.
2: Bye for now. Bye-bye.